Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin the Food Entrepreneur's Podcast. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm your host. That's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O for anyone who's out there. Uh, please check us out on Instagram at Justin the Food Entrepreneur's or at Justin Bizarro. Again, that's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O. And today I have with us a very special guest, again, continuing to highlight our Nashville um, episodes. I have Isaac Beard from Pepper Fire. How are you doing today, Isaac? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. So, Isaac, what's the? Um, how'd you get started as an entrepreneur? I mean, let's talk about Nashville chicken. Like, I've had Nashville hot chicken on the podcast before, but I haven't had actual Nashville hot chicken company from Nashville on the podcast. So, um, I would love to talk about that more. Well, let's do it. So you asked me how I got started in uh, being an entrepreneur. Yes. I guess if you're going to dial that back to the beginning, um, raising a family of uh, entrepreneurs, I guess. My dad ran his own uh, paint and body collision center. And uh, my mom was an artist who did a lot of pottery shows around the uh, nation. And uh, I never saw anybody really have an actual job. So I think I was just kind of born into the idea of just finding something and doing it. And so um, how'd you, I mean, did you end up in the kitchen? Is that what happened? I, I really didn't. Um, I, I remember how to put this. So years ago, somebody told me, I said, Oh man, you got to go try this hot chicken thing. And we're talking, you know, 25, 30 years ago. And there's a legendary hot chicken restaurant. So I went down there and gave it a shot, ate it, came back, checked it off my list of things to do. And, um, yeah, that was about it. Until about a month later, I woke up in the middle of the night, and all I wanted in life at that point was a plate of hot chicken. I don't <laughs> know what happened, but it absolutely infected me. And from that moment forward, uh, I ate hot chicken at least once a day, sometimes twice a day. And... Uh, except for Sundays and Mondays because they were closed, and those were two really hard days for me. <laughs> so, um, but I—I I, I I mean, really so you—you you, you just fell in love with hot chicken that much? I did, and it's hard to explain, uh, but I absolutely just fell in love with it. And then, as I was going to the restaurants, there was one in particular that I particularly liked, and I just sat there and was just watching them. And the more I was staring at them. I was like, man, you know what? This is really, I'm not to say not that hard, but it just dawned on me, you know, I could do this. And uh, my wife and I had another business. We were massage therapists for about 10 years. We ran a clinic here in Nashville that had about, you know, between 15 and 20 therapists. And it was a good gig, but I just, in my downtime, I kept writing business plans to open up a hot chicken restaurant. And I can't tell you how many reams of paper I blew through with an Excel spreadsheet to get there. But um, at some point, we were able to flip the switch, and uh, we found a little uh, double-sided drive-through. It used to be an old Beefy's Hamburgers place, kind of like a checkers. And I love that. Uh, it was for, it was for rent, and we took a gamble on it, and the rest is history. Well, so Isaac, I mean, I've, I I want to back up a little bit. I was adjusting some sound here, so we're, we're we're getting into the only the second recording as I moved into Nashville studios here, and with the crew we have here, and it's um the um 
I look one. I want to let the audience know, like we've spent time together. I've visited your your restaurant now, and I love who you are as an entrepreneur. So, tell me how you just. I mean, you you have a wife. Then I don't know if you have a daughter yet, but I'm assuming you do based on her age. Um, so how do you like? Okay, I have a family. I have a wife. I have this gig. My life. I'm just gonna take everything I have and start a restaurant. How do you make that leap? Well, it was sort of a leap, but we more tripped into it, to be honest with you. Yeah, I love uh, this. Yeah, as all entrepreneurs kind of do. <laughs> when we had the uh, the massage therapy business, I, that was great, but we never really made any money at it. We were paying everybody else. And um, yeah, and so it, it really didn't have the legs that it needed to. And there was two things that happened to us in uh, May of, or 2010. And January, we actually got into a car wreck, and um, that kind of laid me out, which made my I put my wife in the driver's seat at the, at the uh, business, and she did a phenomenal job at that. She always has been great, but what we started to see was that we really weren't interested in keeping this thing going, especially with the injuries that I had. And then in May of 2010, we actually got hit with a with a big flood, made national news, yeah, and way late Nashville. And the building I was in was actually not in a flood zone, but there was so much water that came into Nashville that the water table, water rose up through the um, to the basement of this old building. It's one of the oldest houses in Nashville that we were renting, and it just absolutely smelled like a tomb when we were done. So we uh, we worked to deal with the landlord to get out of that. Uh, I had some healing to do. Uh, I went to uh, the hospital for about six months looking at uh, at cognitive uh, brain therapy classes and trying to figure out the difference between a Christmas tree and a triangle for a while. And then yeah. over time, I started to heal up, got better, got stronger. And, um, you know, this thing with the hot chicken restaurant just started to kind of become a thing that we were talking about. And, you know, when life gives you a complete reset, sometimes you need to just kind of go after it. And God yeah, gives you a direction and opens a door for you <laughs> that you better run through because it'll keep being there unless you do. Yeah, well, it was, you know, absolutely. And if I'd have done anything else, uh, I still would have had the dream to do this restaurant. Now, it was, you know, it was on a small scale. It wasn't, you know, the, the gloriousness that you think in your mind. When you think, yeah, oh, I'm of course. Up. But um, it got us where we needed to be. And uh, we had a little bit of social media at the time that was kind of coming online. And in November of two, uh, 2010, we launched. And um, yeah, it was good. And it's been great ever since, almost. <laughs> well, so let's sort of talk about the ups and downs. I mean, the car accident is just sort of part of being an entrepreneur. It's like the one of those things that happens and it, it eventually got you into being, um, to start Pepper Fire and to really push it. But you've had ups and downs along the way. So let me back up a second internally isaac have you always known you wanted to be in business for yourself was it always something that you knew you wanted to do well that's an interesting question i i i can't say that i think that's kind of a mixed question because on one level i'm not sure that i ever decided i wanted to be an entrepreneur but i do remember this one kind of velcro moment (laughs) as a child where my mother just looked at me and said, you're not going to be able to work for anybody else. You're going to have to figure this out for yourself. And I think I was like 11. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess we were having an argument or something. And But that moment has stuck with me my entire life. 
And, you know, she was right. Uh, so <laughs> this is one of those things where, you know, I can, I can play well with others, uh, but I just, I, I'm never as happy as when I'm struggling to, to see a dream come. Yeah, me neither. And it's interesting you say that. Like my when I graduated from high school, um, my class was only like it was all the classes were like fifty to sixty to seventy five boys anyway. But my class was particular small. There was only twenty nine of us that graduated in my class that year. But so we got very personal speeches during our graduation. One of the things the teacher said is, "Oh, Bizarro, you great athlete, not much of a student." And I have to laugh because that was always the way it was for me. Like if it was something that was challenging, I could do well at it. If it wasn't challenging or it didn't interest me and it didn't follow the dream that I had even as a kid to be an entrepreneur, it was very hard for me to put the time and the effort into it. And it took me a while to figure out that I just need to show up to class and absorb everything I could, the classics, the whatever, because they all mattered in business. But one of the things that's interesting is that pushback from our parents and our teachers that are like, yeah, you're not going to fit in. Probably you probably, we probably need to look at this differently with you. There's something going on there. And if it's not medication, let's figure it out, you know? And it's, um, and it's sort of the path of the entrepreneur anyway, even if you're a singer or a musician, which we have so much here in Nashville, like some people are born to know that they're meant to sing. Some people discover it like in their twenties, the, the thing is, is we have these skills in us. It's just a matter of whether we realize them or not or we chase them. Now, at 42 years old, I'm not all of a sudden going to start playing basketball, okay, and like jam a basketball. That's just not going to happen even if I trained really hard. LeBron James will still smash me. And um, so it's within reason, you know, or if I'm going to play basketball, it's for fun. I'm not going to do it to be a professional. But the things that we invest in or the things that happen to us become our lives. And even as youth, it's so funny because your mother was almost encouraging you to be an entrepreneur because she's like, Isaac, you're going to you're you're going to be a rebel for life. And um, <laughs> and there, and there's that. And that's part of what the Pepper Fire brand is, in my opinion. It's this. It's this rebellion also. It's it's you were here, you were one of the first to really start grabbing on to Nashville hot chicken. Not like there has been centuries of tradition. I don't want to confuse people over the the tradition of Nashville hot chicken versus what I'm gonna call the commercialization and popularity of the entrepreneurship of hot chicken. Okay, so sure. Um, in that being said, you're one of the OGs and the originals in terms of bringing it to the front. And, you know, I'm going to get stuff on the podcast and everyone, when it comes to hot chicken, believe me, when I did hot chicken for Sacramento, I had so many people from Nashville hit me up about Nashville and the chicken. I just didn't have the right direction. I didn't have the concentration. So now that Nashville is a concentration for the podcast. So everyone knows big tourism industry. Everyone knows this is music city all types of music not just country music and so there's music there all the time but what it's doing since the flood that isaac talked about in 2010 is the buildings have been bought up the real estate started to go up in value because people took those buildings and renovated them so now there's a booming food industry and i mean booming tourism industry because all the honky tonks and stuff and hotels that have gone up and now the food industry is needing to catch up doordash the ubers the the restaurant tours so um in my opinion, um, which I would say is pretty good considering historically, if you guys listen to podcasts, I'm pretty good at predicting what's going to happen next and trends. 
we're going to see a big boom in Nashville established restaurants and franchises and concepts across the country and the world. Why? Because there's a booming entrepreneurship going on in this city. That's why I'm here. Okay, I'm like a fighter. When my life changes, I need to go back to what made me a fighter. I don't need to go back to the comfort of a normal life. I have to go back with the entrepreneurs. I have to go think, figure things out, and I have to go rebuild a life. And as I talked about on the last podcast, you know, possibly start a family in that part of my life. So that being said, the important thing that I want to get apart, get across as I continue with Isaac here is that Nashville is Full of this environment of like the last decade of these entrepreneurs going through the struggles as Nashville's been changing and growing and it's ripe just hear me everyone it's ripe for the explosion of out of the Nashville market for these food businesses that's why I'm here not only to inform all of the tourists and everyone internationally you know all 90 some thousand followers or subscribers that these places exist in Nashville and this is a tourist destination, but these are the best entrepreneurs in the world right now. They're surrounded by each other and by nature for whatever reason, a decade later, we've now created what I would call a bubbling over effect where these entrepreneurs are going to start bubbling out of just Nashville. So Isaac, let's go into like the 2.0 version of your, your story. So you guys decide you want to start the restaurant and you know okay and everyone's like yes we're finally there probably thinking as an entrepreneur but that's really not even close to the the celebration part like you think like yes we're finally there but then the real work begins right oh absolutely i mean we've had oh you know i i think i mentioned once before that you know there's i can come across as half empty i feel like i'm half full I'm probably more pragmatic, but the pragmatic guy looks just like the half-empty guy sometimes. Uh, might wear a different hat, but um, yeah, the world work started, and uh, so you know, running a restaurant is hard work. It's it is great work if that's really what you want to do. Um, I was always told, you know, you never want to get into the restaurant business, but I got to tell you, the restaurant business has been very good to me uh, and our family, and uh, and I'm very thankful for it. But, um, yeah, there's challenges. I mean, we opened up a little uh, 410 square foot uh, double-sided drive-through and um, uh, and just went to town uh, best we could. And the funny thing is we hired a guy who was from a major chain to help us kind of run this thing. And, uh, you know, you put, if I think one of the challenges I had was putting too much faith in people because of the skill set that I hadn't developed yet. Yeah. And, um, you know, it didn't take long. It didn't take long for uh, former drug habits and things like that yeah. to start, you know, coming out. And I remember the first the first major hurdle I had was I had my CPA call me one day while I was driving. He goes, hey, man, did you know you had a 67% food cost? And I said, no, Holy crap. I don't. And what was happening is I had allowed that manager to run me around town all day long because we were constantly out of things. And um, so he was taking the cash orders out the window and pocketing all that, which, of course, will naturally raise your food cost yeah. to 67% in the heartbeat. So we realized really fast that we needed to grow up and take this thing seriously. It was no longer just, you know, hey, we got our dream. And now it's time to put our feet to the uh, fire and uh, and learn this thing for real. 
and uh, so we did and uh, grew that uh, small store into something that uh, t- that was very uh, worthy of being proud of but we outgrew that moved into another location and um, did really well there uh, but I'll tell you as uh, I think I told you before we made a very critical mistake and I would tell everybody one of the lessons that I learned was know what is coming at you and um, man for whatever reason my real estate agent and myself never bothered to read the entire lease and realized that we needed to turn in a sheet of paper that simply said we're staying the next five years uh, well on the day after our uh, letter was due we got a nice email saying hey thanks for uh, being here and we enjoyed your time and we wish you luck in the future and we ended up getting unplugged from that restaurant space and uh, that began one of the most painful chapters in our family's history Um, taking a restaurant that was doing um, you know an exceptional amount of money and then just turning the lights off Uh, we tried for six months to rework a deal and just could not make it work and um, well that was a big that was a big slap yeah, let me pause you for a second, Isaac. I'm sorry, but I just want the audience, I want to emphasize this and just take a pause for a second. <laughs> Excuse me. It's that um, that what you just said there, you were you were writing success and then an external thing, which is a lease, which I, I got to tell you this thing, and I consult about this a lot, is as restaurateurs at the very beginning, we're so eager to get into our spaces or entrepreneurs that we often overlook the important details of leases like Isaac just talked about. And so I thank you for being vulnerable and authentic, Isaac, because I think I will tell you that in my own experience, there's like a lot of food entrepreneurs and restaurateurs that they talk about your business going under in two to five years. What has a lot to do with the way you negotiate your lease and the ability to take a lease and extend it if your business does well. And in my opinion, um, and this is here nor there, and Isaac didn't do anything wrong, but I've learned this the hard way also, is I really had to find really good real estate commercial agents that understand restaurant space and restaurant leases. And guys, I will tell you that at least in my experience, even in major cities like Denver, Atlanta, um, San Francisco, there's not just a common real estate agent that actually knows anything about the space. I've done restaurant construction. I've had restaurant construction businesses. We've had restaurant uh, equipment businesses I ran for 12 years. So I know all about the building, the design, and how the restaurants work. Also, I was also in that space. I only didn't just produce food as an entrepreneur. And that being said, what always ended up happening or how we would end up in situations where we would own restaurants because the person wouldn't pay almost always had to do with the way they negotiated their lease because it's the thing that matters the most to your business actually and um and for isaac's case you can hear what happened he built a business he had this brand but then all of a sudden you move your location and if you built a brand and it's location 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 in today's world that's a problem right so no one did anything wrong and i will tell you just so isaac feels better and we're we're doing this publicly is that he's not alone. So anyone that's out there, we've never talked about this on the podcast, but 
he's definitely not alone. And so you're not alone, Isaac. I can't tell you. It's a little trick that the real estate agents play in the commercial space or the owners, I should say, not the actual agents, but the agents that work with groups like this do do this. And it's where they put in um, tenants. And when they have a really successful tenant, they use that tenant to drive up the rate and then push them out. And sometimes it takes years. Sometimes they wait for economies. But it is generally the way it's done because when you build a restaurant space and has all the equipment and all the gadgets, it's easy to pull one out and put another in. So go ahead, Isaac. I'm sorry, but I just want to emphasize that point to the audience as a very important learning lesson as an entrepreneur. Yeah, and and to your point, I, you know, we had two five-year leases at the end of you know that we were still execu- we could have executed. But the issue wasn't, you know, necessarily that they had that in there. That's a pretty standard thing for rent recapture. I yeah. get all that. Yeah. Uh, the issue was that I didn't catch it because I didn't do due diligence. Yeah. And so the point of this whole part of the podcast is just simply to say, look, if you're going to get into a deal, you need to learn your business. And that includes the fine print. It's not enough just to be able to throw some food in a fryer and have your customers uh, pat you on the back. Because you will get you will get burned at some point if you don't take the details seriously. Yeah, I agree with you, Isaac. Uh, thank you. And I mean, how do you recover from this now? Right, like this is yeah. like a total knockdown, drag out, torn down. Like I don't know. If this is one of those moments where, like, what is going on? I don't understand. Is this this is happening for me? What's what's exactly happening for me right now? And so, um, tell me about that. Yeah. Um, so we had an interesting situation, I guess. Well, the whole thing was just an interesting situation, but um, we couldn't rene- uh, renegotiate the lease. We already said that. Uh, so we called in every chip we had, and we emptied that store. I, we would have taken the paint off the wall if we could at this point. <laughs> we were pretty, pretty irritated about the situation, and it really sucks because we had to fire everybody. Our lease ended at the end of the year, and on December 16th, we let the entire staff go. And oh, what a kick in the teeth. Right, right before, before Christmas, Christmas right? yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, you never want to be that guy. And there we were. So, But we ended up uh, getting everything out of the store a couple of days early we literally uh, i mean we took the walking coolers we took everything we didn't take the hood just because um it wasn't that great of a hood and the scrap metal before it wasn't you know worth it would cost more to take it down at that point i was like okay i'm full of spite but i'm not willing to lose money on this deal so uh, anyway so there we were we're out uh and then uh we looked at another space and we were working on it and had invested quite a bit of money into it. And then lo and behold, COVID hit. And all of a sudden, um, the space we were looking at, the guy that was gonna put the money into it, his uh, other building just emptied out. There was no, he didn't have any tenants anymore because everybody was at the house. Uh, So that put us on pause for a little bit. And the funny thing about Nashville is, if you'd looked at the news reports and watched the news, in every city, there was at least, I mean, you know, you hear five, six, ten restaurants that were out of business all of a sudden. We could have found a restaurant space, uh, apparently, anywhere in the country, um, except for Nashville. Yeah. We're just in this, as you talked about, all these people moving here, and all this industry moving here. And I'm thankful in the sense that nobody went out of business 
uh, during the COVID period um, because they were able to pivot to becoming delivery and all the rest of that. But we couldn't find a spot to save our life. And we looked and we looked and I drove county to county to county trying to find a spot. And we finally hit a wall. And where we're at now, uh, my wife and I looked at each other and said, look, delivery is a big deal. Maybe this is the pivot. Um, and so we took a 900 square foot building and we built it out to be a um, carry out and delivery kind of, you know, pizza esque in a way, you know, the old school, you know, go pick up your pizza at a Papa John's. Yeah. And um, that's where we're at right now. And, and I think we're on the right track. I think through all the chaos, I think what we've finally been able to do is take the best of what we were and shed some of the worst of what we were. And I think moving into the delivery carryout space and then focusing on third-party delivery, I really think that's ultimately the good that's coming out of this is that we're able to really hone down what we're good at and uh, focus on that. Yeah, and I want to talk about this a little bit, Isaac, also what you're saying, um, because number one, I want everyone to know, like Isaac and Pepper Fire Chicken like came highly recommended to me by the people I know in the food space and chefs I know and friends of friends. So that's why I tracked down Isaac and his concept and, and what he's doing, okay? I will also tell you that there's a lot of other hot chicken concepts in Nashville, of course. And oh, yeah. one of the things that I've, as I've been talking to different entrepreneurs around the space is there's so much competition here and everyone's very aware of everyone else and how competitive they are within this town. And I find it interesting because the reality is this, and I'm going to say this on the podcast for anyone and any of the future listeners or recorders for Hot Chicken also, or any business for that matter, is what Nashville doesn't realize and all the hot chicken places realize is that you're all building an industry together, a very important one, because there's a lot of imitators out there that aren't from Nashville, okay? And having that Nashville thing all of you guys and all of you being able to actually build hot chicken franchises across the country, no different than there's how many Wendy's and McDonald's and Five Guys and whatever else, Smashburger. There's ways that hot chicken is doing this, and I do see it across the country. But here's the thing that is important. I think that the authentic one, the one that people are going to want, is actually from Nashville. So, um, at least in my opinion. Well, we certainly hope so too. Um, but uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, well, so I think one of the things that separates us out uh, is a lot of the hot chicken restaurants. When we first got in, there really wasn't a paradigm for anything outside of what they call quarters, rest quarters, and leg quarters. That was it. And in fact, that's all we were going to offer when we got into the, into the space. And um, as we were talking to people that we knew and people that wanted to come in, it dawned on us that uh, the market on chicken is shifting. Um, at least it seemed like that. And it's not to say, because I love bone-in chicken. I mean, it's one of my favorites. I feel like it's got the best flavor. Uh, it's more authentic to, to the genre. But, you know, there's a huge amount of people that apparently haven't had bone-in chicken in the last 10 to 15 years. And if you ask them to break the, the chicken apart, it's like killing a squirrel in the front yard. So... Um, it gets a little grisly, and, and as we realized that, it dawned on us we were going to have to go tenders and figure some way to, to, to meet uh, the chicken demand 
uh, outside of the bonehead market. And that has ended up being our real specialty. Uh, and we took a lot of heat for that. We've, we've pushed the genre a lot, I think. Um, and now we've been proud of that. We've taken a lot of heat, but uh, we were the first to bring tenders to the market. We obviously did not create chicken tenders, but nobody had even uh, envisioned that in this town. And then, of course, we just kept going with different dishes. And today we have you know, a whole slew of things that, that would not be considered traditional, but in my opinion, are um, vast improvements on, on the, the food profile. Yeah, and one of the things that I... <laughs> One of the things I love about what you've done is you've been able to adjust your menu also through the bumps, okay? You haven't stuck to what's just traditional. I don't think anyone in this town has because if you want real authentic hot chicken, guys, it is with bone in. It's the traditional style, but I agree with Isaac as it's gone international and it's gone on to sandwiches and there's these other things that are representative of Nashville, the southeast united states that that resonate here that are starting to go onto a global market or at least a domestic market that you've been able to develop cool items and make adjustments to what the industry has demanded because of the ups and downs so let's talk about the development of the menu what is your menu look like um what do people get on what is the expectations how do they order different heat levels because i don't you know from a nashville hot perspective it's like you know ordering something out of space if you're not from nashville you know because people aren't used to ordering different heat levels they're used to ordering maybe a different sauce with a different heat level so there's things like that that adjust here that i think are interesting yeah so i think one of the first things to kind of delve into is the differences between hot chicken and buffalo wings because that's the correlation most people they're they're not even close to each other. I think Nashville hot chicken is more akin to Memphis-style barbecue rubs than it is um, anything else. There's no vinegar in Nashville-style. And so, uh, you know, we don't have mild, medium. Well, we have mild, medium, but we don't have, you know, honey, gold, and uh, whatever the other buffalo flavors are. Um, and there's nothing against that. It's just that it's not our genre. But our heat levels have always used the same names for mild, medium, hot, X, double X. Uh, but our heat level in Nashville style for authentic Nashville hot chicken is two to three times hotter than whatever the same word is in a Buffalo style. And so making that leap uh, for a customer for the first time is extremely important because if somebody's like, oh, I'm from Texas, I can handle double X, uh, maybe. But, you know, but, but what we're not trying to do is see how hot somebody can eat their food. Uh, we're trying to find the perfect level for them. You know, hurt so good really is kind of the key. Uh, you want to find that right spot where it hurts so good, but you can still enjoy it. And um, <laughs> so, It's like that song, uh, Oh, baby, make it hurt so good. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> it's, it's like I can't I, – I'm not a singer, so I can't get the tune. But I think it's John Mel- Cougar Mellencamp or whatever. Um, I think it is too. And uh, But anyway – I like this because one of the things that's true is you're 100% right about this. And um, I agree with you. I think the level of hot has gone down to meet the um, consumers' taste buds because the consumers coming in Nashville are ordering hot, thinking it's buffalo wing hot, and it's significantly hotter from that standpoint. So the word hot means something different. But 
from your menu standpoint, you have the bone-in hot chicken right now. You're talking about the tenders. What else yep. are the items that you have on there? And sort of what are your signature items that people know you for? Because I, I agree it's the hot chicken, but you've done something very cool and developed just some really cool menu items across the board that I that I would love for you to talk about. Sure. Well, our signature item started with uh, something called the pepper cheese. And that is our deep-fried grilled cheese sandwich featuring pepper jack cheese. And uh, it's, it's unique to us, and uh, I'm sure somebody else has done a version of it. And I've seen other hot chicken restaurants now doing an actual grilled cheese. But our deep-fried grilled cheese is um, pretty cool. And, um, it, you know, initially, some what's interesting is some of the things that we've done have just come strictly by accident, you know. Um, you couldn't have planned it. I, early on, we were trying to find, you know, something we could get on TV for. You know, we were totally trying to you know, find something like, yeah. um, you know, we're going to, you know, like a br- Blues Brothers dish, you know, yeah, like, four like whole some chicken. gimmick. Yeah. Yeah. Four whole chickens and a Coke. Right. You know, and uh, if you can eat the whole thing, it's free. But what was happening underneath of all that, uh, when all those things really failed, was um, it's like a claymation video where you kind of watch things moving towards each other. Um, we had the pepper cheese and that was doing well. We had gotten some good write ups for that. But we weren't putting the chicken on top of it. It made no sense to me. Uh, but one day, to save 10 cents on a box, my uh, manager just started tossing the pepper cheese in on top of the chicken. And immediately, we started getting these phone calls like, oh, my God, that was amazing. And um, I, I got irritated because I was like, it's not worth, you know, putting this. I didn't design it that way. And, you know, why are you doing this? And... Um, you know, about six months later, I finally threw my hands in the air and said, okay, maybe this is actually a real dish. And so all of us being uh, Pulp Fiction movie fans at the time, we ended up just calling it the Tender Royale. And uh, so uh, our pepper cheese with three tenders on top. And um, and that thing has become our signature dish. We've uh, gotten tons of national press on it. We've been on TV, you know, 10 or 11 times for it. Uh, featured on it, and uh, it's really become something. Then if you add um, apple topping to it, then that becomes our Apple Jack. And to me, that's one of those, those really special dishes that we have on the menu. And it's a spiced spirit. apple, right? It's like a spiced apple um, it topping. Is. I don't know how to describe it, but maybe you could describe it a little <laughs> bit because I, I want to make sure, because if you're not from the <laughs> South, I don't think you understand what we're talking about. Yeah, it's basically, if you think of a cross between country apples and pie filling, you know, uh, it's got some sweetness, but then we add some savory with some spices to it. And, um, you know, if you were to go to like a Cracker Barrel and order a side of apples, it's kind of a hybrid of that. Um, but it's um, that's become our signature dish. So we have three that we're known for, the pepper cheese, the tender royale, and the apple jack. And then, um, and that really has caught on. And then over time, we've added some other dishes. We were the first in town to put hot chicken on a bun, which sounds crazy. But um, when we did that, I can't tell you how much flack we took for making an actual sandwich. But uh, now, you know, there are chains all over America that are selling hot chicken sandwiches. Yeah. Way more, more, way more than we are. So uh, it's interesting. It's really cool to kind of look out at the landscape and say, okay, that's our that's our fingerprint. 
Well, and you see even Wingstop has added a sandwich, a fried chicken sandwich. And I've been saying this for a few years now, that the fried chicken sandwich business is going to be the big one of the biggest booms we're going to see in America. Think about how many different burger concepts there are. It's just no different than a chicken sandwich, whether it's grilled or fried. It's just going to be one of those things. And one of the reasons I love Nashville Hot Chicken and what, uh, what the entrepreneurs are doing here is it allows that entire building of a segment of just chicken that's not KFC, that's not Popeyes, that's two, one's Cajun style, one's like normal style, but I do think they have a Nashville hot chicken style at KFC. I don't think it's authentic to Nashville. Obviously, it's Kentucky fried chicken. And um, and so I think that that's, that's building an industry. And I think that we're seeing the world explode with hot chicken. But what we're not seeing is people realize where the authenticity actually lies, and and that is here in Nashville. And I will tell you, I didn't notice it as much, and I will be real with everyone, especially with after try, trying Isaac's chicken as well, is that no matter where you are in the world, there's just a difference here no matter what restaurant it is. And there's some chains here or the more popular ones that have commercialized quite a bit, so it's not I wouldn't say the traditional hot chicken, but that's the way business is. We fusion things when things become popular and we dime things down to scale them as businesses. And that's just the way it is. Not everything makes it. And so that being said, if you're here in town, you need to try lots of different hot chicken. I recommend that if you like chicken or fried chicken or you're interested in it, that you actually make an experience of this while you're here in Nashville and go to different places and try within just the Nashville hot chicken space, these entrepreneurs or chefs or creative family recipes that are just all within the space yet so slightly different. But anyway, go ahead, Isaac. Well, and look, and, the, and you're talking about the, you know, the fusing things together or dumbing them down. I mean, what, so one of the negatives that we've had with some of these chains is that they don't hold up to the authentic heat levels that hot chicken was all about. But, you know, on the positive side, uh, we had a, there's a um, hot chicken house here in town that had got multiple locations. And they came in and became tourist darling practically overnight. And they're great guys. But, um, but one of the things that they've done is they have dumbed down the heat levels because every what they figured out is everybody wants to come to town to eat hot chicken. Yeah. Well, they can't all eat hot chicken because most people don't, wouldn't tolerate it. Yeah. But now they can. So they've, they've made hot basically less than mild, right? Yeah, there's not um, enough restrooms for all the beer and the amount of hot, hot <laughs> chicken that they would drink on Broadway. There's not. And, and, and sadly, the, uh, the publicity of the 24-hour chicken you know, yeah. would, would, would do well. It's hot in, hot out. So... Um, <laughs> But I will say this, what they do bring to the story that has been very positive, although there's been a lot of hate for this, but if you embrace it, it's been great. Hot chicken used to take up to three hours to get a piece of chicken with. It was astronomically stupid. And so you would go to uh, one of the legendary places on a Friday night, and there'd be some guy sitting there who'd order a $5 leg quarter, and he's on his phone surfing. The battery's almost out, and he's been there for two and a half hours waiting on his leg quarter to come up. Just in any other world, that would be considered customer abuse. But for some reason, uh, people would just tolerate it. Well, they do Um, still tolerate it here. I mean, the lines are ridiculous. I can't believe how long people are willing to wait for 
for the hot chicken here. I mean, it's worth it. Don't get me wrong. Well, but it's well, just totally happened. crazy. Yeah, and here's what's happened though. Now, of course, you're talking about if you go down to Broadway. There's so many people there that it's just going to be slow by nature. But what happened was when this when these guys came into town, the line was ridiculously long, but they got their food in like four minutes because they were cooking while they were standing out outside. Well, that forced all the rest of us to figure out, well, wait a minute. They, they're willing to wait outside, but in their minds, it wasn't an hour to get their food. It was four minutes. Yeah. And now the rest of us are stuck in this paradigm where we're like, look, I got to cook this thing. You know, breast quarter takes 20, 25 minutes to cook. How am I going to match this? And so it forces all of us to be more creative, to figure out how to maybe par cook something and finish the order as opposed to just cooking the whole thing through. Yeah. And, and to really look at all the systems and structures that this restaurant has. And that, I think, is really what, if you, the good that's come out of this is that all of us have become better business people because of some of this competition that's come in. Well, and there is a hack to frying chicken faster, and it just costs a lot more money, and it's a lot more process, and you can't line up the fryers, and it takes up a lot more space because they're pressure fryers. You could pressure fry the chicken, and it cuts the breasts. Uh, you could do it in about 8 to 10 minutes uh, from my experience, but the problem is is they're massively expensive. They're like twenty to $30,000 a piece versus a normal fryer, which anyone can do the math out there in the food business. They're like one yeah. to $2,000. And, uh, but that's the only way to speed up frying bone in chicken as a pressure fryer in my, that I know of. Pressure frying would be great. Uh, the downside for me is that, you know, without having a steady line outside the door, we do, you know, a ton of call in and, and digital space stuff, but unless you've got 20 people in line and you know, half of them are going to order a breast quarter, when you pull that lid down on a pressure cooker, uh, that's it. You don't, you know, right now with open fryers, I can toss a new one in there right now because, you you know, you order something, I can toss it in there in the batch and just, you know, figure out which one it is. But you're stuck with what you've got on a pressure fryer. And for us, that just wouldn't work. But, um, but, but I also see a way forward where I think the market is shifting away from bone-in um, to boneless. Um, and I think that may be something for us to look at in the future also. And I think that the, unfortunately, just the way the world is working with convenience of food, I would say that I agree with the death thing where people are associating death when they see the bone in for some reason. I don't understand that, but whatever. Um, it's here nor there. I grew up on a farm, so the association is always the same with me. There was procreation and there was death and um, and obviously birth. But it's, um, and I don't mean to, it's not that simple, but it is kind of that simple. <laughs> and um, it's the point being is that I agree with you, the tenders, okay? But in, And I want to inform the audience of this because as consumers, these are the impact of our choices, okay? Like back in the day, there used to be surplus of wings. We didn't know what to do with them. Thank God football picked them up because otherwise we'd be just throwing <laughs> out chicken wings because we're using the rest of the chicken. But now we're doing the same thing where we're – growing these chickens with these uh, hugely abnormally sized breasts, okay? Go figure. We like that. And, um, and but what it's doing is we have a lot of dark meat that's not being used, and it can go overseas, and there's overseas that love dark meat. For me, I love dark meat. The fat, 
everything and I like combining both meats because I get the difference between the fat in each and the way they go into the body and how they both help the brain and you need a combination of both in your diet on a regular basis but that's just me I'm I work on a different level than most people when it comes to food obviously because I've been in the health food business for so long but the thing about it I find so interesting is that there's actually a taste difference to me when you take the bone out like there's not all the flavor that the marrow the stuff that comes out of the bone but yep. to your point and to the point that I just made is it's a convenience thing we just we're so into wanting all the great foods but not wanting to work for it you know and I'm the same way if I'm getting fish I don't want to take the bones out of the fish like I have enough trouble eating fish as it is just so everyone knows for some reason like I love seafood. I love ocean fish, but like lake fish and the bones and like, it's just not my thing. I grew up on the East coast. So we had ocean fish and Chesapeake Bay and that type of thing. For some reason, I just, the flavor doesn't thing. And that's my thing. We all have it, but I get the bone thing from the perspective of that. It weirds me out when I have all those little bones from the fish and I don't want them in my thing. So if that's the association, I can see why it's a thing, but the reality is, is there were bones in the animal at one time that we're eating, regardless of whether we like it or not. So unless well, there's a my, boneless chicken, we're going to grow and just like roll it into the factory. <laughs> like the old far side comic. Uh, yeah, exactly. Chicken ranch. Yeah. Well, you know, I think what's happened is over the last 20 years, and I may be wrong on this, but I think Costco and Sam's club have done a, a, a great job of sanitizing the chicken market and, most of us have had somebody have one of those two memberships and have eaten 10 pounds of frozen skinless uh, chicken breast for so long that we've not had to actually look at bones unless you went through, you know, a major chain fried chicken restaurant. And so I think there's just something about being sanitized in that for a period of time that when you go back, it just kind of becomes grisly. Um, and that's what we kind of found is that, so, you know, and it wasn't just women, it was also guys that just, they'd look at the bones and just be like, yeah, I don't really want to do that. So, um, we saw the, uh, the need to move into tenders, but I'm like you, I think the, uh, the bones add flavor. I think the skin adds flavor. And, uh, to me, the purest version of natural hot chicken is always going to be a bonehead product. Um, but I, you know, and I'm not an environmentalist per se. I love clean water. I love clean ground. I cannot stand it when somebody tosses trash out of the car. But I'm starting to look at, you know, the tenders and trying to figure out in my own self, okay, what is the way to do this? I don't know. And I hate the word sustainability, but, yeah. you know, we sell, we sell a five-piece tender meal, right? That's three chickens that were killed for that one meal. Yeah. So, and I know yeah. that other... Yeah, and I want to talk yeah. about that. Sustainability is an awful word, um, and we use it all the time. And I, I'm going to just – sorry, I'm going to get on a soapbox for a second. But sustainability is by far the worst word we could ever use. And the Europeans created it, of course, to reflect um, the environmental situation. But sustaining something means keeping the status quo, guys. We're not bettering the environment by using the word. It's a trick. Okay, it's like, oh, let's put organic on something. No, everything used to be grown organic. This is not a new marketing term we used to use. How about we just go back to the way it was? And so that's the thing that's ironic is we're marketing the way it should be in the way that it was done. 
Um, but back to the chicken thing um, and sustainability, I agree with you. It's hard because it's hard to what's called whole animal utilization. And in the food business and in the protein business, there's two problems. One is we're not utilizing the whole animal properly, at least in the United States. A lot of parts, like I said, get shipped overseas and utilized. The second part is, is we're not utilizing the amount of diversity we have in protein sources. And the number of animals, the bison, the alligators, and all of this. And I'm going to branch onto this for one second just because it's a perfect turning point is that I am also talking and consulting with other entrepreneurs. And I've talked to them about this before I'm doing this on the space. And yes. And um, so they're okay with me talking about it. But I will tell you that Nashville hot chicken is a tradition. And as Isaac just talked about, He's trying to look at utilizing the whole animal, number one, but also differentiate his business. And I will tell you that we have a mindset that Nashville hot is just for chicken. But I will tell you, and and I'm confident, I I know these entrepreneurs are all for building the space uh, for Nashville hot, but they're experimenting with things that are outside of chicken as well. And so- Oh, yeah. Well, we're all in this space. There is someone messing with fish out there, I will tell you. There's shrimp being starting to mess with. We got turkey. We've got, you know, uh, fried pork chops and stuff like that that people are starting to enter in the Nashville hot. So we're disassociating that it just has to be with chicken or it just has to be bone in, as Isaac talked about. And then the major thing that I really want everyone to, to get from this conversation is that the term should be regeneration not sustainability. I've been in the food game for, well, my whole life. I grew up on a farm and I started fruit stands when I was 15 years old and worked through four of those as well. So I've always been entrepreneurial and trying to figure stuff out all while also going to play soccer in Europe as a kid and and all of that stuff. But my point being is we're not here to sustain the status quo. We need to regenerate, which means it's not only about not having things get worse, but it's about putting ourselves and it's about eating our way. This is a real big emphasis. We have to eat our way to a better world. So what Isaac's talking about, um, I'm just going to say it um, on a higher level and, and we try to really get down in the weeds with entrepreneurs, but as a higher level person, if you start thinking that way as an entrepreneur in the food space, what can I do to regenerate? What am I doing to help local farmers? What am I doing to shorten the gap between me and the number of suppliers that are in the way or the number of people that are stepping on it, or the number of foreign countries that are stepping on the food before it gets from an American farm to an American palate is unbelievable guys number of countries that step on our food before it gets to us. So when we're talking regeneration, it's all of those things. So I like the word sustainability. Um, Isaac, I appreciate you bringing it up, but I just want to emphasize that sustaining is a status quo. And it means that I am going to be mediocre for the rest of my life. I'm just saying that that's what that word means. And so if you're trying to achieve something and we're trying to better something, we need to come up with a better word. But um, sorry, Isaac, but I agree with you. You're, you're in this space now where you're just taking all of the chicken breasts. So um, how, how do you go forward? I mean, you know, do you figure out how to utilize more of the animal? I mean, I don't even know what you do with the dark meat because there is no boneless dark meat tenders, for example, well, or nuggets, maybe. Yeah, so at one point we had uh, put a... Um, uh, boneless uh, thighs on the sandwiches, and they were delicious. I love but, that. 
but the suppliers were the the issue there. Yeah. They're supposed to, you know, the specs are supposed to be a seven ounce cut, which means you're 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 taking them off of it. You know, the chicken has got to be seven eight pounds. It's almost a turkey at that point. Um, but then all of a sudden you end up with scraps because really that market is designed for more of a Chinese food market, and so they're going to cut it all the all the heck anyway. So the specs were never good. So we ended up dropping that. Um, I don't know. You know, that's what we're trying to look at. I mean, there's this dichotomy between where we'd like to go with our business model and then this idea of using more cuts, which simply means more labor, which means more um, you know, more prep, which means, you know, and so we're trying to figure out, OK, how can you streamline things by adding more complication to it? And I don't know that that's necessarily possible. Uh, it may be that at some point, you know, tenders are a legal term. So it may be that we, you know, move to breast trips or something, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't I don't know the long term answer for that. It just strikes me as um, slightly wasteful to think about a five piece tender taking three chickens, two and a half chickens. To I get know there. it's a lot of death. And I know. Yeah. It's just one. So I. Yeah, and I just don't know the answer yet. We're we're weed, weeding through that, you know. Uh, I know that a, a more the simpler the concept, the easier it is to run. And these questions start begging, you know. Well, how much extra do you want to do? And and that and that's going to be the, the the scales, right? You know, figuring out the balance for us versus what the consumer will eventually demand. Uh, as something that's considered right in the marketplace. Um, I don't think there's really a, uh, I don't think anybody's crying foul, no pun intended yet, but I can see it coming down the road where we have to start looking at, you know, I mean, you said, you know, we used to throw wings away like crazy. I mean, nobody, they were considered waste meat until some guy put, you know, some sauce on it in Buffalo. Um, and now, you know, the, the wing industry is massive. Yeah. So we've taken a waste product and turned it into a huge opportunity. Well, no There's different than be lobster, waste. right? I mean, lobster is the yeah. same thing. It used to be fed to the prisoners because we had such abundance of it. <laughs> well, so now it. look at that market. So that's crazy. And the wing market yeah, is the so, same. Wings almost go more per pound during sometimes the year than the other parts of the chicken. Well, then that's the crazy thing. For years. Uh, a box of wings could run you 130 to $140 for 40 pounds. And right now they're sitting at 50. Um, and, and so, you know, now would be a great time to be in the wing market, but that's not our, that's not our game. We'll leave that to somebody else. Yeah. So Isaac, I have a few questions here that the staff is holding up for me that I haven't got to yet. And I would like to ask them. So one of the questions that I have here and I can't fully read it, I'm going to do my best. Um, from because I can't get over to the glass to read the words and is um, what was you know how did your wife and you get through the hard times like how did you communicate them what were the ups and downs you know because it's not easy when a couple's in a in a business together and I've done both like I've had success with a partner that was an entrepreneur and and and, and did her own thing and a lot of success there and I've also had success in almost in an enmeshment and entanglement not to use a negative psychological term but it is what happens when you work together and do business together so it's um, how did you work through Man. that well we're still working through that um, 
and it's messy and it's sloppy. And for any of these couples that are out there that, that have a wonderful Facebook and Instagram page showing how awesome and smiley they are all the time, uh, as a couple working together, God bless them. Uh, yeah. but, <laughs> but, uh, I don't think that's the experience that most people have working with their spouse. I have a absolutely wonderful wife who fills in all of my deficiencies. Um, I just, you know, there's always stuff that both of us need to grow on. And um, where I'm more vision oriented, um, she can just make stuff happen. You know, I, it's it, it, not really applicable, I guess. But like if, if I don't know if you're this way, but like if I decide, I'm, you know, it's time to clean the bedroom, right? Yeah. So I'll pick some stuff up and then I'll pull out a, a I'll, and I'll put something back in a drawer and then I'll say, well, this drawer is pretty crappy. So I dump the drawer out on the bed. And the next thing I know, I have absolutely obliterated my bedroom. And it's almost to the point of depression. I'm like, where the hell am I going to sleep? I can't clean all this up now. And my wife is the opposite. She could have everything spotless and organized by color and size in yeah. about 11 minutes. So That's me. I'm the she... color size. Like everything's a filing cabinet in my head and everything's very <laughs> organized by dates and colors. And like, I don't sure. know why it gives me, uh, maybe I have a little bit of a thing going on there mentally, but it gives me a little bit of just, cause life is chaotic, well, I think. And so having somewhat of a routine, I think probably helps personalities. Yeah, absolutely. Like and, and mine. And I don't disagree with that. And so, um, where she has always been, uh, the most effective is when she comes in and she helps us stay organized, stay clean, you know, um, and not, not that we're unclean, but it's just, yeah, it takes a certain type of person to be able to really manage, or herd cats, you know, and she's got that where I tell you, if we're being, you know, transparent, uh, you know, you have to nurture that type of person and I don't do a good job of that. And that person who will give you everything will also burn out very quickly. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so that's been the struggle that I've had by working with my spouse for now for the last, you know, 20 something years is not, uh, taking advantage of somebody's skill set uh, to profit from that without them being able to feel invested and um, rewarded at the same time. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's yeah. it, it is a hard it is a hard thing to do to work with your spouse and to make them feel cherished in that workspace. And still, day in and day out. You've got customers who are complaining about things. You know, they'll, they'll come in and they'll tell you one thing. I mean, you know, the amount of people that will lie over a pack of ranch, you know, because they don't want to spend 25 cents on it, you know, just give it to them. But, you know, it's, it's you know, when your wife deals with that constant, constant, constant badgering, you know, the walls come up and uh, it becomes, becomes hard. So you have to really, really work on that. And then, you know, sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. It's interesting because, um, and I will say this, and I live my life very publicly and everyone knows my past and, and I'm sure and whatever. So, and you know, and so everyone knows like it's very amicable, like the way things have gone. But as now I'm, I, like I said, I was with before someone, we had our separate things and the entrepreneurs and then something that we built together and did together, um, 
I will say I agree with you on on the on the major part of there's people that really give and dedicate their life and are servant leaders. Like they're truly servant. Like when Jesus like would walk up to someone and wash someone's feet just to do it, they're like, well, why is he doing that? He's Jesus or whatever. And they're like, oh, well, he's a servant leader. He's not here to take anything from someone. He's here to lead. And by leading, he's serving individuals. And I think what happens in those individuals particularly, and I'm one of them because I like giving to the world, which makes me a good entrepreneur. My dream is always big enough to fit everyone else's in it, make sure everyone's taking care of their kids, go through college, so on and so forth. Like my mind is worried about them, hence why I'm in my situation. I have no children on my own. And like I'm trying to figure that out because I did believe that so much, you know, and to that point, you will invest in the people around you and you will give everything at, at a cost, almost emptying yourself. And, um, and it's hard because um, we don't understand that when we're such servants that other people don't fill our buckets the way that we fill everyone else's bucket. And I'm a yeah. very positive person. I think you know, Isaac, like I fill the world with positivity. I'm very upbeat. I believe in people to the fullest. But it means my bucket is almost empty all the time. And it takes a very yeah. special spouse or, I don't know, person to understand that, um, that that's what's going on. But I've also come to understand that I'm the one emptying my bucket also. So I have to be aware that I can't put necessarily the filling on the bucket to someone else. And while it's great if I have a partner that helps me do that, I've weirdly had to become, and I've only learned this over the last few years, maybe five to seven years, um, which is weird because that would be when my life looked the most chaotic, but it was because I was trying to figure this out because I was giving away too much in my business and in my life and to the people around me. And it's how do you fill the bucket? And so I think when you're in a good relationship and I don't know, you guys have obviously done it better than I have. Um, and you're saying you, you need to do a better job. I, I think honestly for us, um, and personalities like us, it's the compliments, it's the, the credit, it's the realizing that you're doing a good job that actually drives us because monetarily something happens to us as servant leaders where honesty and integrity and core values matter more than the money. And because we're such servants and because we give so openly, which I believe your wife does, and not to talk about on the podcast, but it's just so, as an entrepreneur, you almost get in this weird space where you work so hard and you give so much honestly that the integrity and the core values matter so much suddenly. And then your bucket really starts getting empty for some reason, even though you realize that you should just keep giving in that you're tied to the outcome. And if you're tied to the outcome, you don't realize that the outcome is actually years, if not centuries after our existence. And that's the hard part, I think, as personalities like ours is it's detaching the current outcome and understanding the outcomes in the long run, Uh, especially when you function at a higher level of being a servant leader, like we're talking about. So we got in the weeds, but uh, thank you. Uh, Honestly, Isaac, that was very vulnerable and, um, and I and I will tell you from your two's perspective that for me as Justin, if 
I like someone who's organized and has everything organized and, and is organized in their life and in their business. But I also like what you're talking about where someone will just be like, oh, fuck it. I'm going to dump all my socks on the floor and well, let's just do this and let's be spontaneous, you know, because without spontaneousness, there really isn't joy in, in life. I mean, you can have comfort and discipline and having everything. Believe me, I'm very disciplined with my schedule and my life, but I'm also flexible and spontaneous enough where I leave enough room where I can move things around where my life is still good and not stressful. And I've had to learn that the hard way too, where the busier I got didn't mean I needed to keep cramming into 120 hours a week. It just meant I need to be more efficient. I need to trust people more and I need to grow human. So, um, how about with, the, with your daughter and stuff, uh, Isaac, I mean, you have a whole dynamic and she's in the business. So you're trying to raise a family also. I mean, I mean, cause you're, you're basically also instilling core values of an entrepreneur into your daughter as well. Correct. Yeah. We are, yeah. In fact, my so right now, uh, the whole family is working in the restaurant. You know, we've we've got a couple other employees, but they're the they're the the ones that fill in the holes when something you know needs to be filled. And uh, it's been very um, interesting to watch. But so we're, I don't want to say sheltered, but you know we've we've uh, homeschooled our kids, and you know, and we've enjoyed all that. Um, but, you know, sometimes you can get to a place where you realize, ah, you know what, public school probably would have been okay for them, too. Uh, they would have had better socialization skills and, um, you know, be, be different things. So you, at some point you kind of get a little nervous. You go, okay, well, are they going to be able to function when they go to college or if they go do whatever? And it's been, I think them being in the restaurant has been good for all of us to the extent that, they're working with the public daily. They get to see all kinds of personalities. They get to see, I mean, my daughter's 16. She's been working the restaurant, every, every position except for frying chicken for since, uh, for the last 10 months, she has grown dramatically as a person in the last 10 months. Now we'll see if that's for positive or for, uh, for, you know, for negative as uh, time goes on. Uh, it's a lot of weight to put on a child, uh, who, uh, would rather just be on their Instagram <laughs> at, any, yeah. at any given moment. But I tell you, the growth that I've seen in both my kids in terms of being able to look somebody in the eye and say no or yes uh, has been very, very uh, exciting and rewarding to see that. Uh, but there is a balance because I know that, you know, what I, I used to have this idea that, oh, I'm going to build this business and then I'm going to get my kids involved and, I, and they're going to take it over and we're all going to be a yeah, family business. I've been there. With and what, yeah. yeah. And what I realized was my kids couldn't care less about this. Yeah. I mean, they love me. They love, they love, you know, what the business affords them, but they're, they want to, they have their own dreams. I got a son that's going to mechanic school. I got a son, uh, my daughter will eventually want to go to art school and I have to find a way to allow them to do that. Um, which has freed me to not have to, I don't want to say keep the business, but you know, it's not about them. It's, you know, the business is mine. They, they see that they understand that what I have to make sure is that, and this is true for managers, our, our most successful employees have never always bought in to the concept, right? What they've done is said that this job allows me to do what I want to do, whether yeah. it's play music or art or something else. And so they've never, the, the best employees that I've had, uh, or I hate that word, but the team members, 
um, have looked at working for us as an opportunity to get to do what they want to do outside of work. And that's uh, a massive difference in the guy that's, that's working for you who wants to be a computer programmer and is really angry because he's not doing what he wants to do. And so he takes that out on the rest of the employees and uh, it makes everybody's job there harder. And so, you know, back to how do you deal with your, your spouse working in the restaurant? I think that's really where the spouse has to come in unless they are, unless they've taken ownership of the, of the business also, which uh, is difficult unless you've got this 50, 50 thing and you both 50, 50% you know, creativity involved. They need to have something outside of this that working here affords them the opportunity to do that taps into whatever potential they've got. Yeah, and it's and and I don't have children of my own, but I understand the legacy thing very much. It's very a core of who I am, which is why I'm in the conundrum I'm in now. Or I guess it's not a conundrum. I'm I'm having a free to do what I want as an entrepreneur, and I'm in the game solo now, which is interesting. Which I like as an entrepreneur. I don't have business partners uh, per se, other than a business I'm working on in Seattle. One or maybe a few, but mostly. What happens is, um, as a kid, I, I've been in the entrepreneurial space, and I was extremely introverted. Okay, which people can't imagine because I'm on the podcast. Now I'll say hello to anyone. I'll introduce myself. Random persons walking down the street, I'll just be like, "Hey, what's your name?" And um, but as a kid, that was not what I. I was so shy. I grew up on a farm. I, like I said, I went to a small school. I played soccer in Europe. I played travel soccer. It was my world. So there wasn't really a lot of world to me, but there was the entrepreneurial space that I had to actually deal with people and I had to deal with adults on a regular basis and I had to go collect money if I was owed money or I was never going to get the money. And so things like that would go on and the maturity and how old my soul got, how fast. And it wasn't, I was somewhat born that way because I was born an entrepreneur. There's no doubt from the moment I was three years old, I was trying to figure out how to make money or business or service people and find solutions that people would pay for. Okay, that's the key to being entrepreneurs, finding solutions people would pay for. And um, that also benefits the world in some way. And, um, and food, it's pretty easy because you create good food, People eat food, they're happy, they get hungry, you know, they do it as a family, it creates that environment. So we can attach that pretty easily. My point being this is that the entrepreneurial thing that we pass on to our kids is so much beyond the business itself. And for me, I was 18 years old when Food Service Partners started, and so was my whole life. Like my 20s were in and out of the business as an entrepreneur. But I will tell you that now that I'm not in that business and it's weird because when I'm alone and I'm doing things on my own, I wouldn't, I don't even know necessarily if I would go back into the food production business. I mean, I'm kind of going back into it, but I'm like, is that really what I would have done? Or is it something that I just did because I was familiar with and I had a dad who was in that space who could help mentor me and coach me and be a part of it. And so there's that type of thing. And we don't realize it for me it's just I'm like I'm like oh well now 24 I don't have all these things in this business in this family business and it didn't work out the way I wanted it to necessarily um, for the rest of my life and now I've got to refigure things out but I've also 
because of my parents, because the same thing you're doing for your daughter and son, I have the skill set to like bounce back up and handle the situation and climb up. And those experiences don't happen in school anymore. We get trophies for everything. So we never learn how to get knocked down and get back up. And, and we're not getting the experience unless it's through our parents. And I'm going to just say one more thing because I keep talking way more than I should. Um, is that what I like about what Isaac said, and it's particularly true in Nashville, okay? A lot of entrepreneurs and guys, I'm, I'm literally talking to like six to seven entrepreneurs a day in Nashville trying to get them on the podcast to do this big push we're talking about for Nashville, um, as well as entrepreneurs that I'm still working on internationally and nationally for the push that I still have to do there or we have to do there, but Nashville has this weird thing that's not like any other city I've been to, and I, and I do a lot of research, and I drive around a lot, and I meet a lot of people, but there's a lot of kids that are running the front desk. There's a lot of, whether it's um, your Asian restaurants or Chinese restaurants, um, or your your Italian restaurants, or your you know, I, I see that there's some um, ethnic, like Eastern European restaurants cl- coming up here and there um, that we're talking to as well. But all of these children are running the front of the restaurants. And while I've seen it elsewhere, I've never seen it like I've seen it here, which is the other reason I'm encouraged. Again, I work in decades, okay? And while everyone else works in hours and what I'm going to do now, I, in 24 years of being in business, learned to work in decades and legacies and dropping and planting seeds now that'll last beyond when I'm when I'm alive, okay? Because that's what I've really honed in on and for the individual as well. And I will tell you, knowing that space and knowing why I'm in Nashville and I talk about God calling me here and everything aligning and the people and the friends I meet and the musicians I hang out with on the podcast, I talk about it and I'll give them a plug at the end. But it's really this. There is something here in the food game and in the entrepreneurial space between the musicians and the food business that is different than anywhere else in the world. And I would go ahead. I would I would venture to say that part of oh, I may be stepping in it here. I have a feeling that part of that is is uh, is modern farming. I think the families still do a lot together here. It's part of the core of what we are as, as Southerners. Uh, you know, we're not farming the farm, but the business is the farm. But there's probably some tie-in here to Tennessee being a right-to-work state, yeah. where there's not a lot of, you know, I don't. There's not. What am I trying to say? Um, I also don't I, see a Tennessee kid telling their parent that they're not going to work and that they should just give them an allowance. I don't see that happening here in Nashville as much as the rest of the world either. Well, and there may be some of that too, but, uh, but I, you know, and, and as rents and things have escalated in this town, uh, I think the family has become more important to the workforce as opposed to just, you know, having a capital outlay and saying, okay, we're going to hire a manager and 16 employees. Um, and especially when you're bootstrapping it, I mean, you know, so I, you know, we talked about how we lost that last place over a technical error that I made, but you know, what that did financially was if we'd opened up a second store, but the first was still going, I would have approached it completely differently than I'm approaching it now because I would have had the capital to do what I've perceivably needed to do. Right. But 
we didn't do that. And so we had to bootstrap this thing to get it back going. I mean, statistically, we should have never reopened. But we were fortunate to be able to do that. And, um, and I mean, I'm so glad we were. But it has required the family to come in and do this. Now, could we do that without having uh, a child that was homeschooled? I don't think so. You know, that would have changed everything. Um, you know, we get to set our own hours. And, and uh, it's just... It's made life different, uh, not necessarily easier, but different. So, I I think that the as you guys can hear, I um I bring my dog to the studio, but he normally doesn't bark for some reason. He's barking, so if you hear it one or two, it's just because we didn't add him out. But anyway, I wanted to um <laughs> he I want to um. I want to go back to what you said, which is the family unit has become more important in the in the workforce, particularly as entrepreneurs. And I'm going to just, I like the American dream. I am the American dream. You know, my grandparents came over from Italy, you know, Mussolini and stuff and fascism and World War One and all the stuff that was going on you know, pushed a lot of Italians into America through Ellis Island during that time and, and better stances and literally just put family members, kids on ships and then they're like, oh, we'll take the oldest and the youngest or something and put them on the ship or the smartest and just put kids on the ship and let them come into America. But what happened in, in that, and I will talk about Italians because that's what I'm most familiar with, is we went into, particularly into construction and the food businesses, you know, and in doing so, they became family-run businesses. So people see Italians as these close-knit families. And while that's true because of the Catholic background in Italy and stuff like that, what actually in the United States would happen with the loyalty in that family, and you see it in the mafia and stuff like that, that, that bloodline, is that it was because of being in the food businesses or in the construction businesses that you could only rely on family to come in day in and day out. And, you know, and Italians at the time were, you know, looked down upon, um, especially if we had a vowel at the end of our name. Okay. And I will tell you that weirdly it still happens, which makes me know that we're still well, not over racism and ethnic problems. And it's, um, and, but the thing is this, is that it's about the family. And if you want to live the American dream, it's understanding that not only is your family here to help build your business, but by doing so, you're actually building your legacy. And that influence on them leads to someone like me, okay? My, you know, my grandfather, you know, he was an entrepreneur at four different businesses, a gas station, lumberyard, accounting, cabinet shop. You know, he's entrepreneur. My father comes out, he goes mainstream, but he eventually ends up somewhat entrepreneurial space because of nature of me going into the business and all of those things. So I end up being an entrepreneur and compounding it. My mother's an entrepreneur because we've had a functioning quarter horse farm and um, as a business and so it matters. And so what Isaac, what you're doing, I think is just so important for the future of America or any free market country is that we're instilling these entrepreneurial free thinking, renaissance thinking, because I get it, arts, arts and stuff and music, it is free thinking and people are very out there and pushing things and trying new things artistically. 
but there's no one else in the world, I'm sorry, and people are going to get mad at me, that push things artistically and that actually make cultural differences like food does. Okay? And they're like, people are like, oh, well, you know, compare it to Black Lives Matter. I agree. I'm not talking about the intent of making a cultural change. Okay? Because if we do that with food, we could, to Isaac's point, have things like regeneration. But what I'm talking about is that we can create trends like Nashville hot chicken. It can change culturally the way we eat or the amount of things that are entered into the American palate or any palate. In America, entrepreneurs are artisticness or rebelliousness, just like an artist or a musician, that rebelliousness is what leads to profitability and creates new industries that are standard. I mean, back in the day, Bill Gates was a rebel, and now he's like some nerdy dude with his glasses trying to save the world through toilets that don't flush somehow. And, you know, <laughs> and so it's like, what? But, I mean, the reality is this. I think he a little bit lost, um, he got too comfortable, and he doesn't push himself as an entrepreneur anymore because he's just the money thing, and he didn't consciously put himself in uncomfortable situations like I talked about at the beginning of the podcast. As an entrepreneur, you also have to realize that the downtimes are your gift because you're a fighter. You know, you need the downtimes to to start training and fight because those fights are what leads to the next evolution of your business. It's just the way it is. And I don't know how to shortcut it. And I've never seen anyone that's been successful over the long run that hasn't lost their money, at least in the shorter long run, that has continually been a successful entrepreneur, especially over life that hasn't had that, you know, philosophy. So Isaac, I keep talking. Um, I would like to do this. I'm going to ask you to come back on the podcast because they're looking at me like I have a very few more minutes to talk and they have a list of about 12 questions that I haven't asked. Um, so I'd okay. love to have you back on maybe next week or the following week if we could do that and get through those questions, if that's cool with you. Let's set it up. Awesome. And Isaac, as we start closing things off, could you tell everyone where they can find you on social media, where your address is located? If they're coming in from out of town, what are the delivery services that you use that they can order from, et cetera, et cetera? Absolutely. So it's Pepper Fire Hot Chicken, and uh, we're located in the Nations area of Nashville, Tennessee, uh, at 5104 Centennial Boulevard. And uh, online, we primarily are on Facebook and Instagram. On Instagram, you can find us at Pepperfire, and on Facebook, it's Pepperfire Hot Chicken. Awesome, and um, and of course, all three of our um, uh, Uber Eats. If you want to do the third-party delivery, we're at Uber Eats, we're at Grubhub, and DoorDash. Very cool. Um, wow, I did a lot more talking, but Isaac, I really one of the things that I like about Isaac is that for the audience is that I can really relate to you. I can relate to the ups and downs. I can relate to the hard knocks. It's very authentic and real. And we have a lot of, you know, individuals that I talk to or, or entrepreneurs that don't actually share what the actual lessons are or what actually made them into who they are. And so as I follow up with this and Isaac is nice enough to do another podcast so we can answer the questions. And if anyone in the audience has questions, just send them in um, at Justin the Food Entrepreneurs or at Justin Bazaar on Instagram. If you don't DM your questions, guys, through there, I don't take them because I can't. I, I use the email to help keep track of the people that want to be on the podcast. And the crew here and I, 
like talk to lots of entrepreneurs. For every one entrepreneur on the podcast, I think I go through and vet probably a hundred. And that's not a joke. Um, it's a lot. I do my homework. I really talk to the people. You can ask Isaac. I stopped by his place twice. I do my homework and I try to have conversations with everyone. Sometimes it's not that way where I get enough information from surrounding people or an audience where I get a general idea and one quick conversation does it, but it's unusual anymore, uh, especially with the podcast being picked up with the syndication it has been, uh, the level to which we're going, uh, what's going on here in Nashville. We do a lot of vetting. So when you hear someone on here, it's not, just that we pick some random person up or it's any person in Nashville. I really try to take a message or people that are doing things different humans that are doing things differently. And I try to bring them on the podcast. And even in Nashville, I'm trying to expose the best and the individuals who encapsulate the entrepreneurship that I think is important to represent the United States on a global scale with their product, particularly out of Nashville. I will put it that way. That's the best way I can put it. So I appreciate you, Isaac, coming on the podcast, and I appreciate you agreeing to come back on. Um, so thank you. It's been a pleasure. And everyone out there, again, I love you guys. I really be positive. Like, grow, grow your businesses if you're an entrepreneur. If you're trying to get in an entrepreneurial space, just make the leap or go learn it. If you want to be in hot chicken, go work for a hot chicken company. And this is what I'm going to leave everyone with. These are my final notes. KFC was started by Colonel Sanders. I can't remember his first name. But either way, he started Kentucky Fried Chicken. Okay, And he did okay, but it wasn't until a man named Dave Thomas came in and he mentored him so much so that Dave Thomas went and formed Wendy's. And for some reason, and I'm going to say this because it's the most important hack that everyone's looking for. It is the only hack and it's the hardest one and it's the only, it's not a hack, it's reality. But I'm going to call it a hack since everyone wants to use it that way is that he invested in Dave Thomas. He taught him the business. He taught him everything. He's like, oh, you want to go do some? Go do burgers. McDonald's needs competition. And that's what happened. And when Colonel Sanders did that and he started investing in Dave Thomas, knowing that Dave Thomas was a genius and was going to go be his competition, but he was going to go help build a fast food market and there could be a KFC next to every Wendy's. He didn't know that, but he was open to the idea. KFC boomed and became one of the biggest franchises ever. But weirdly, he did it by focusing on his business, not only in his business. And when you focus on your business, guys, it's growing the individuals so they can survive with or without you. Because as an entrepreneur, it is our job to continually grow and educate the individuals after the education process is over. Because no matter what, we fail as humans as societies, as governments, that we no longer educate our kids or our families, mostly after 22 years old, 18 to 22 years old, at least in America, okay, in graduate school, whatever, but education should be continuous for the, our entire lives, and if we're looking at how it should be spent, and I don't want taxes to go up and not for that, but the reality is we should have more continuing education, and we should be pushing it more in our businesses, and the free ones that are out there, and the community colleges, and all that. Just saying. So I don't mean to go on a tangent, but as entrepreneurs, it is our duty to grow humans. And when we do that, our businesses do grow. And I thought 
Colonel Sanders would be a good analogy since we're talking about fried chicken. Um, so I'll leave everyone with that. Um, you never know um, who's going to make a difference. And just think about how many jobs Wendy's has created and how many lives and educations and salaries and tuitions that those jobs have paid because Colonel Sanders invested in a human and helped them grow named Dave Thomas. So thank you, Isaac. I really appreciate you. I love Nashville, guys. I don't know why, but this is like, uh, I've been like wandering around always as an entrepreneur, never really knowing where's home. I've been in New York and I love Denver. It's, it's great being there and I, I found it to be home, um, but not like a place where I belong. So the entrepreneurial space, the musicians, the friends I'm making, um, all the people that are coming into my life here, I appreciate all of you guys, all the new listeners to the podcast over the last um, three months. Thank you guys. I mean, we've almost doubled our numbers. It's incredible. So thank you guys for your support. I know I'm concentrating it more and I'm more focused on it since I don't have other businesses. So that helps. I'm spending a lot more time with the entrepreneurs. So that helps. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you guys. I really, I can't tell you how humble I am by all of it. Um, and just to go back to it, I have one minute here. I went through ups and downs with this podcast and failures and trying to get deals with syndication and all of that stuff. And I've ended up weirdly in the place that I'm supposed to be and the people that I'm supposed to be around and in the place that I believe like this is where I'm going to grow the next stage of my life where I'm, I'm going to settle down and family and, and something more serious. And if it takes a long time, it takes a long time. But that's part of life and that's part of being an entrepreneur is that I'm in it for the legacy. I'm in it for the long-term positive impact that it'll have and the pollination of the world around me. So thank you again, Isaac. Um, again, you can reach us at Justin Bizarro, B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O, and Justin the Food Entrepreneurs. Thank you, everyone. We're out.